Hello and welcome to Society Osmiogenics Podcast with your hosts Lily. Hello. And me, Hannah. And this week we are on letter R. I'm really excited. I'm ready for this, Lily. No <laughs> idea what you've picked. What is the letter R? Today we are doing the Juno Award winning, Grammy nominated, Mr. Rufus McGarrigal Wainwright. Wow! Oh my god, I can't believe that. I didn't think of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I just had Rage Against the Machine in my head, but even then, I wasn't sure. Rufus, wait, yeah. pretty, we're seeing Rufus soon, aren't we? I know, I know. I can't wait. Um, Great choice. I'm very happy. So I'm actually calling this uh, Rufus Wainwright is a gateway drug. Okay. I don't think he would mind me saying that. He was at one point um, somewhat drug adult. So mm-hmm. he he gets it. I think he'd get it. <laughs> he, Rufus, he also, let us know what you think, okay? He has a good <laughs> sense of humor um, as well as being an amazing artist. So Yeah, he's funny. Uh, so Rufus has been around since July 1973. He was born in Rhinebeck, New York. I've never been there, but apparently it's absolutely gorgeous um, kind of a village. Sounds pretty, Rhinebeck. Mm. I think it's quite fancy as well. Some pretty sort of Tony people live there, so... Uh, so he was born into a bit of a legacy family. Quite. Um, this might end up being a bit of an unauthorized biography of the Wainwright family. <laughs> the Wainwrights, this is your life. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I love that show so much. <laughs> Why don't they do that anymore? Not that I know because they don't have a telly, but they don't do it anymore, do they? Um, I don't know, not that I know of. Such a great idea. Although I suppose it's not that much of a surprise to see people probably... This is your life used to like surprise people at the very end. The big, the big finish would be we brought your sister who you haven't seen for 30 years over mm. from Australia. But nowadays, obviously, a COVID special would be probably banging. Yeah, fun. it would work now, wouldn't it? it? Wouldn't be the same without Michael Aspel, though, would it? Yeah, you'd have to. They would cast someone off in it. You know, they would. Some sort of Chris Evans type. Ruin it. Would work well with Graham Norton, maybe. I can imagine him doing it. Bring back This Is Your Life and Cheese Moments. <laughs> Put that on the list. <laughs> Things we need to get sorted before this podcast ever ends. <laughs> anyway, tell me more about Rufus and the Wainwrights. Okay. Um, so Rufus got signed um, to a record company in 1996. It was largely thanks to his very more reasonably famous dad, Loudon Rain, Wainwright III. So um, he had been sort of bumming around... New York. He figured things would go great because he'd been brought up in Montreal, New York's place to be, you know, it's the, the, the town of the piano man. Why wouldn't he be, you know, warmly received? But grunge was happening. Jeff Buckley was a big star in town, which Rufus said he kind of he loosely knew him. They weren't good pals or anything like that, but he knew of him. He thought he was really talented. And um, okay. obviously they both um, recorded Hallelujah as well. Of course, yeah. Um, but he, yeah, he did not have a good time of it. And anyone who knows anything about Rufus Wainwright knows that he's not just backwards and coming forwards, mm-hmm. should we say. So it was not particularly to his taste. So I guess passing his tape to his dad and basically asking for a favour could not have been easy. And that's probably why he hadn't done it then. <laughs> By the time he did, um, so Loudon passed it to his friend Van Dyke Parks, who was also a folk singer back in the day, as Loudon was. And he got it to Larry Warrenker. Larry 
um, had just uh, been um, given the job of presiding over a newly formed DreamWorks SKG, which mm-hmm. is put together by um, Spielberg, Katzenberg and Geffen. And Rufus has the distinction of being the very first artist that they ever signed. Katzenberg, was that the Friends? Katzenberg. Je- is it Jeffrey? can't remember. I feel like that sounds right. <laughs> Topical. <laughs> last name Friends Reunited. Steven, this week, last week. Definitely Steven Spielberg. David Geffen, I believe. Yeah. Jeffrey Katzenberg sounds right. I'm going to go with Jeff. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to play the first tune. Um, this is Foolish Love. And feel so Okay, so the album was eponymously titled and it came out in 1998. Ruf, um, so Rufus was n- uh, named by Rolling Stone as the best new artist of 98, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Considering he was relatively no one, obviously his dad is Lavin Wainwright the third. I feel like not a lot of people are that familiar with Loudon's work. I mean, he's a bit of a niche guy. That was a good rendition of Happy Birthday. <laughs> Um, so the album was largely produced by John Bryan, which didn't really mean anything to me until I looked into him and I could not believe it. Uh, it, it was pretty incredible. But so John Bryan is this everyman instrumentalist. Um, he started out as a guitarist, he was in a bunch of bands. Um, he brings these incredibly high production values to whatever he does. And he's, I, I think, very kind of an intense person but he's so unbelievably talented and um so before he did rufus's album he had been scoring a couple of paul thomas anderson movies i don't know if you know that director if you know if you don't know his name but you will know his work okay um he uh is responsible for um hard eight and magnolia okay yeah okay and punch drunk love okay and uh so um, he's known as PTA. So if I mention him again, I'm PTA, <laughs> it's just a bit. Not the PTA. <laughs> so we're just going to get the music with it. They're very like kind of a bit of a musical flavor, which as you know, I hate musicals. So it's really weird that I absolutely love this album. It's very theatrical. He is very theatrical. Yeah. Have you been to a gig yet? No, not yet. They're so full on. Can't wait. It is like his own little vaudeville show. <laughs> yeah, no, I can well imagine. Like his Instagram feed, but for a couple of hours. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen him like performing? Like he'll go walking his dog on the beach and then just do like an impromptu performance to like literally a man walking his dog. Yeah, he, he's. <laughs> absolutely there for it all great um the first time i saw him was um the out out of the game uh tour i think i saw i think i saw him in 2013 and he brought up at one point he had his personal trainer dress up in angel wings and like pants (laughs) and boxing boots because he was like well i had to bring him because otherwise i'd get fat sounds like the cover of in utero it was, yeah, it was, and, and then they did like a kind of a conga line and he had a big 
it was it was a, it was a whole it was a whole thing. I tell you what, though, oh, drove me wait. crazy about that um, was that um, I had been trying to get to see Crystal Warren for the longest time, and she was always sold out. And then my husband and I went to see the Out of the Game tour uh, gig at the Brighton Dome, and we both agreed it was like there's no point in turning out for the you know pre-artist support, yeah. support act. So we didn't. We arrived at the last song that Support was doing. It was it was Crystal Warren. First of all, I was like, oh my god, that's that's Crystal Warren. What, so you missed all I her missed set? the whole thing apart from the last one, which was even worse because then I got to see what I was missing, which was unbearable. Yeah. And then uh, she was she was his backing singer. Oh right, for okay. His entire well, act. But I love her music. <laughs> so upset. Well, at least you didn't miss her completely. Did you know who's supporting this time? I haven't even no idea. Probably maybe it's not been announced. Yeah, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have thought so. And then I saw the um, Poses uh, anniversary tour at um, was that the Royal Albert Hall? At the Royal Albert Hall. Thank you very much. Um, which my brother got me for my fortieth birthday. So thanks, Greg. Nice. It was great. It was amazing. Yeah, this, I tried to get to that. It sold out. He had this incredible tool number. It was like a it was a jacket, but it had a train and it was rainbow colours. It was unbelievable. Well, like Joseph from the Technical Dreamcoat. About six people had to bring it in and put it on him. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Jason great. Donovan Link already. Well done. And he played some of these tracks as well. <laughs> oh, it was great. It was so good. I, I mean, because obviously when he's out on tour, he's playing his, his newest stuff as all artists do. So it was incredible that I got to. He yeah. played my favorite as well, which we're. Oh, was that next? It's not quite next. These are, um, I'm not. I'm not sticking um, necessarily to the order in which they play on the album because it's my pod and I'll do what I like, thanks. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to argue with that way. Yeah. I'm going to pour myself another gin. What, there we're was like a five reason. minutes in and uh, yeah, one gin down already. So you're wrapped by Ruth's dulcet tones. Absolutely. Um, I do think his voice is like, like, I've never done heroin, but his voice kind of... <laughs> Reminds me of the heroin that I've never taken. Oh. I don't know. Rufus can, has can you done heroin. Yeah, yeah, course, yeah. He's done it for both of us. He, he was never addicted to it, though. To be fair. Okay. Oh, this is so. This is my absolute favorite. This is this is the first time I ever heard Rufus Wainwright. It was on the radio in '98, and I immediately went out and bought the album. I didn't know anything about him, but I just love this track so much. It's kind this of Christmassy. What is it? That's something festive about it. Joyous. You're ruining my favorite Sorry. song. <laughs> Hannah doing her comedy ASMR. gin shtick. <laughs> So this is basically about falling in love on Valentine's Day and by, well, April Fool's, the joke's on you, honey, type of thing. Romantic, not realism. <laughs> backing, um, yeah, backing singer is Martha. Oh. Family affair. Oh, it's so good. It is such a jaunt. I absolutely love it. So Martha um, is not only um, doing backing vocals, she's also in the video. Have you ever seen the video? No. Is that a comedy one? It's, well, he basically, he wakes up in bed in the morning, although he is, to be fair, fully clothed, and then um, 
he has um, these opera heroines asleep next to him and they all wake up too. So it's kind of like uh, that they're always with him. Right, his harem. Yeah. And, you know, and he goes to the dressing table and sorts himself out and they're kind of preening themselves and then they all go out, but they're dressed as characters. So you've got like, um, is it Cho-Cho, like Madame Butterfly and um, you've got uh, Gilda and Carmen. Brilliant. Oh, I'll have to have a look at that. There's a very, uh, a very striking looking woman um, called Bonnie Ahrens, uh, who's an actress. I was thinking that she does look really familiar. I can't yeah, find out who that played her. She played the nun in the horror film, The Nun, 2018. What else is she really, It's really scary. <laughs> I know that name. Mm. Um, so Bonnie is Tosca. And then there is another lady, and you would definitely recognize her in the video. It's Melissa Abdemauer. No way! Yeah. Awesome. So she's playing a Gilda from Rigoletto, where she... Um, so. I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'm just going to type down the time. So basically, they go along to a diner, and um, one by one, they kind of they drop off in the ways that they die in the in opera the, that right, they're in. Okay. And he, you know, he's kind of trying to save them, and he can't. Well, they come back to life in the end. But so they go to this diner, and um, the the waitress is uh, Gwen Stefani, no. in a black wig. Oh yeah. my god. Um. Which I did know, obviously, that it was Gwen. Um, but what I didn't know is uh, she's in it because her best friend, Sophie Muller, is the um, is the director. She's a British director, and she's a really good friend of Gwen's. And in fact, to make everything a lot easier, Gwen was like, "Why don't you just film at my house?" So the house that Rufus wakes up is in Gwen's the morning, house. Yeah, and oh, the amazing. dressing table and. Uh, is he wearing like his silk dressing gown that he wears in his lockdown videos? No, at the piano. He's young and live, and he's wearing a like a black long sleeved t shirt, which he looks very fetching, I have to say. Um, so yeah, it's a very clever um, video. It has less to do with this song though. The video for April Fools is is basically uh, fits perfectly with um, his other track from the album Damned Ladies which is about how frustrating he finds it to listen to these operas that he loves. He's a huge opera fan and never be able to stop their untimely deaths that he knows are coming. You know what it's like when you watch a movie that, and you're like, oh, don't go around that corner or, you know, even though you know that they do. So the, but the video is very before, so it's telling the story. It's that, actually that telling the story of that in a different song. Right, okay. Yes. Cool. Um, it's interesting. I think it may have been promotional, so it didn't really need to match. It was just to kind of get his face out there and have people know who the hell he was and well, get the flavor. Because, done the job. Yeah, definitely. Um, the drums on this track are being played by the legendary Jim, Jim Keltner, who um, has played with literally everybody. Um, he was on Simon, uh, Carly Simon's album, Secrets. Uh, he played with the nice Traveling Wilburys. Nice link. It's a last <laughs> week. Very good. Oh, another link. And also, very excitingly, this is Dan, ladies. Uh, Jim Keltner played drums on the Steely Dan track, Peg. Oh, your face. seven, which made me very happy to know. Yeah. So here we go. Brown eyes ask a don't believe the creed. 
Yeah, he's got this kind of like, I don't know, it's like he can't really be asked to sing, but it's beautiful. Like a languid. Yes, yes. I find he uses his voice like an instrument. Languid and languishing. Like he might just drop off to sleep. <laughs> With opera singers. Well, apparently he tried out once uh, when he was at McGill briefly. Um, he thought he'd audition for the opera department. Since he loved opera so much from the age of 13, he'd been completely obsessed with it. Um, so apparently he, he turned up in his university get-up, what my dad might call looking very Brighton, <laughs> which is his sort of polite way of saying you look like a mess. <laughs> and directional, that's, that's a good way. Um, and apparently they, they heard him out and said, yeah, you've got a good voice. Um, but, you know, you're going to have to drop those clogs you're wearing. Just get dressed. And, uh, yeah, apparently he was like, okay, bye then. You know, like, will I fuck? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I'm keeping the clogs and I'll do my own thing. I can um, imagine him literally in clogs as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. He wears some very interesting things, but he does his own thing and you've got to love him for that. Like Stoney and his crocs. Yeah, oh, I love this bit. I can imagine him doing that thing with his head that he does, like he's jiggling his head as he plays the piano. Yeah. With his eyes closed. <laughs> feeling it. I'm feeling it, Rufus. I love it. Channeling Rufus. <laughs> if you wanted to call him Rufy, it just sounds wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> what? You don't call him that. <laughs> so if you want to know his, his drug of choice and his dark, deep days, um, it's crystal math. Yeah. He's lucky to have his teeth, really. She's lucky to be alive, I think. Apparently, he had be a bit classy than that. He, well, he did everything. He was apparently fond of orgies as well, which he doesn't mind talking about. Graham Norton, since you bring him up. Um, and he's fairly uh, direct about these things. Mm -hmm. But apparently, he, he had a particularly heavy night involving Barbara Bush. Oh yeah, the pres ex president yeah. sort of, and, um, and he did some other TV show, and then he did a bunch of crystal meth and, and, and ketamine. Let's get Barbara some cred, though. Well, I did think she was probably thinking, "Shut up!" <laughs> Telling everyone this, he went temporarily blind, oh. and he realised that he might have a serious problem. <laughs> um, but it was Elton John. Apparently, he reached what, out to him wow. and said. Need to go to rehab big time so he did and he sorted himself out pulled a namey winehouse on him sent him to rehab yeah yeah i mean i think he was just having too much fun really party um, paper elton no well done elton <laughs> <laughs> he may be alive listen today, to uncle elton always listen to uncle elton <laughs> um i mean so, i imagine uncle elton knows what he's talking about absolutely so this next one is called matinee idol very vaudevillian, I, I think. Actually, didn't Elton have a thing not that long ago where, like, he shocked, I don't know, didn't he tell the BBC or something? He, did, he basically just told some interviewer. It must have been a BBC one or something. He was just very, very frank about how he'd just done way too much cocaine and it kind of shocked the nation for a bit. It's like, why is that shock? 
it was really recent. It was like Ryan Harvey was saying people years ago. ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's jacket potatoes that are dangerous in his game. Right, so this is Matinee Idol. Um, it is based on River Phoenix. Wow, and the beautiful, gorgeous, talented guy that he your, was. Your picture of of River by the postman, Brighton's yeah. own other postman. Ooh, that's a wonderful excuse to put that on the Insta, actually. Mm. It's great. And so on this track, the marimba, the drums, the bass, and the mandolin are all played by John Bryan. Amazing, the genius producer. Oh, okay. Um, apparently, John Bryan has said that he didn't until later on in his career realize that producers don't usually turn up with a truck filled with instruments that you then plan to bring into the production of the track. <laughs> Serious stuff. Right. If Rufus was in a musical, wrote a musical, had something to do with a musical, would you be interested? He has written two operas. Oh, here we go. But mm, no, but you like your opera, don't you? I'm talking about musicals. I'm talking full-on musicals. Musicals that you don't like. Oh, I don't know. That's hard. Would he have written it or is he in it? Mm, but Yeah. If he's in it, I'm watching But I, I just want to double down on that and say, you know, stuff like Moulin Rouge, uh, it leaves me utterly cold. I literally cannot stand it. It's so gross. It's going to make you do Romeo and Juliet, Baz Luhrmann's. Fucking hate It's a good soundtrack. Great soundtrack. All of them are unbearably Actually, I don't like Leo, but... It makes me want to stick chopsticks in my ear and permanently deafen myself. (laughs) It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Okay, so... um, I feel like this is very reminiscent of Jellyfish. That kind of circusy feel to it. And then yeah, I found I out see that. John Bryan played guitar on the Jellyfish album Spilt Milk, which is one of my favourite all-time albums. So then I'm like, oh my god, John Bryan. Stick it on the Spidergram. How do I not know who you are? <laughs> You're a fucking genius. I love it. Um, he's in a bunch of other stuff. Well, anyway, we'll get there. So, um, John Bryan has stated that working with Rufus was a lot of work. Um, Can imagine. It took them two years to finish the record. Whoa. 56 songs. Wow. 62 tapes. And they spent nearly $1 million. Which sounds... How much of that went on Crystal Meth? Well, it sounds great, but... <laughs> no, I don't think he was doing Crystal Meth. Oh, I'm just going to pause this one here because I feel like I'm going to talk about it in a second. But um, So, yeah, so obviously I learned from a podcast recently because I don't know that much about you know, recording contracts and, and how things, you know, I know that they, I thought, I'll put it this way. I thought that, um, whoever signed you paid for the production and, you know, you know, money to live on kind of thing while you're recording your album. You have to pay a load of it back, don't you? But yeah, I didn't realize. So if you don't kind of necessarily understand that either, or what is this and that costing, um, you then have to pay all that money back before you make anything. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think I only knew that because of listening to stuff about Chesney Hawk <laughs> and how he got properly bitten on the bum about that, like lived it up, spent loads of money and then realised that actually it wasn't his money to spend. Um, so Rufus has barely ever seen a penny from that particular album and some of those songs he wrote when he was a young teenager, so they mean kind of a lot to him. Hmm. So it 
he he does seem to harbour uh, something of a grudge against John Bryan. But John Bryan has uh, also talked about, for example, Fiona Apple, who he's worked with extensively. And they're good friends. Apparently they have lunch every week. Who? And John and John, Fiona, John Bryan and Fiona, Fiona Apple. Right, okay. And he has said, and you know, she has this reputation as being incredibly difficult. And, you know, he has said she's one of the easiest persons he's ever worked with and that she's interested in the creative, you know, collaboration between producer and artist and, you know, developing that. Okay. Um, whereas I don't think Rufus really was. Or he said, you know, he's amazingly talented and, you know, I'd be excited to get the track down with him. But then just as just as he was about to, you know, sing the kind of the, you know, heart and soul of the song, he then put this incredibly complicated piano over it and you couldn't even hear him. But he wouldn't he wouldn't hear about taking it down like he needed it to be his way. And so anyway, I don't believe that they've ever worked together again. Okay. <laughs> but John Bryan has Many, many, you know, long-lived collaborations with a lot of people, such as PTA, who we're talking about. He scored nearly all of his films. And in fact, John Bryan used to go out with Amy Mann. Oh. And it was because he had worked with PTA that PTA got hold of... <laughs> okay, Paul Thomas Anderson um, got hold of some tracks that she had been working on, and he was really captivated with them. And Magnolia basically took a turn because of the songs he wanted. So the songs actually influenced the story. Which okay. is why the songs feature so heavily, you know, and there's, you know, the bits where Yeah, I can't remember what's on it, but I remember it being a good the, soundtrack, yeah. Oh, it's an incredible soundtrack. I love Amy Mann. That's the other thing. I had her first album, whatever, but I didn't realise that John Bryan had produced it and co-written some of it, and they were going out at the time. And so I'm, I'm slightly blown away to find out how much of John Bryan's work I loved without ever having known who he was. Cool. Anyway. Um, so the first song um, we listened to was Foolish Love. It kind of goes with another track called Danny Boy because they're about the same guy, straight guy crush um, that Rufus had. Apparently they had a little kiss sometimes, but the guy was completely straight and he was a drug addict. So Rufus pretty much realised it wasn't going anywhere, but he was madly in love with him anyway. And he was beautiful. And um, But he has also said since then that he straightened up and he, well, he was always straight. He quit drugs. He moved back to Nova Scotia. I know he has like three or four kids or something. So Danny Boy, if anyone was wondering, is safe and well. All right. Good. And all is good. Um, so, yeah, the next one is called Millbrook. So we just started. I'm just going to keep going. This is gorgeous. I love the, the whole. It does sound like the, the, like the intro music to a. Yeah. Mm. Actually, all music show. pointed out that um, there are a lot of similarities between this song and Gershwin's An American in Paris. And it's very similar. If you want to have a listen to that, you can totally hear it. So, Millbrook is a boarding school in upstate New York that he went to. Okay. It's about the students coming and going to school and teenagers are like, basically. But it's... Yeah, it's adorable. It's, it's kind of like a musical number. Song. How weird to be at that school and have a song written about. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, apparently his dad, Loudon, insisted that he go to boarding school at around, I think, the age of 14 because uh, he was very concerned that he was turning into a complete mama's boy. <laughs> it's a good 
wonder if it had a name like Millbrook. It wouldn't quite work the same. Like Hove Park. Or... <laughs> St. Peter's. Well, when I um, read that, I was thinking, oh, I bet Rufus really hated it, you know, being taken from his mother, um, who was a huge inspiration to him, and who introduced him to opera as well. And she was obviously a, a folk singer herself, part of the McGarrigal sisters. Um, but he actually agrees with his dad and said it was the making of him and he really needed to get out and meet other people and be in a different space. So, Cool. Um, so um, the arrangement is by uh, Van Dyke Parks, who we talked about a little bit earlier. He's yes, the guy who's friends with his dad. He's, uh, yeah, so he's a bit of a legend. The first paid job he ever had. So he was a folk singer as well. Um uh, this is so cool. His first arrangement was the Jungle Book's Bare Necessities, cool. <laughs> which makes you a bit of a ledge. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I'm not, because he also arranged this track, which is called Baby. Um, Van Dyke Parks worked with Brian Wilson uh, on the Smile album, which wasn't received particularly well, but um, he's, he's said to be an incredible Nothing musician himself. In fact, he inspired right. David Crosby to start his Nothing own band <laughs> because he went to see Van Dyke Parks in his band and said... I want to do what that guy's doing. Gutted for Van Dyke Parks, he didn't kind of reach the same level of success. But so, what was Van Dyke Van Dyke Parks' band? I can't remember what it was called. They didn't do anything. They were do, they were a folk outfit. Yeah. So they just went from place to place, kind of thing. Um, but David Crosby did ask him to at one point join Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, uh, which of course he, he he didn't really want to do. Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, and Parks. Indeed, yes. Um, Parks from a very famous family, actually. Uh, all his brothers um, play different instruments. They're all from Louisiana, and um, they have had their hands in kind of pop culture, really. His, his brother wrote um, something stupid and sold it to Frank Sinatra for him to sing with his daughter. Nancy. That's weird. I was listening to that this morning. A cover by, I can't remember who now. It's weird. How strange, yeah. Spooky. Weird. <laughs> Van Dyke Parks, that guy you've never heard of, hmm. but you've probably heard lots of stuff that he's done. Um, he really hated the Beatles, and he really hated the whole British invasion situation. How rude. Well, he was a folk singer, and you could just see like the folk singing, um, just the folk scene was taking off um, across the country, and the Beatles were threatening it. And they, they really did. They kind of, the whole kind of round was scorched um, of folk singers and Summer of Love and all that stuff. And it was replaced by something completely different, which came from our shores, I'm afraid. Yeah. It did make me think, though, what would music have ended up being in in late 60s America? It's weird it to think that, though. Yeah. Or here. More folk. Would folk have become much more of a thing? I know it's pretty... Who knows, in a parallel universe. I was thinking, no Beatles, no cosy pretenders like Oasis. True. Oh, happy day. <laughs> Did you see my first retweet this week? No. What was it? I've never retweeted anything in my life. Was it something anti-Oasis? It was this amazing piece uh, written by, let me see if I can, Neil Kulkami. He's basically retorting to uh, Noel Gallagher's calling Harry, Prince Harry, a snowflake. Right. And he just lays into this. Oh, it's... Well, he lays into Noel. It's beautiful. Oh, but Harry it is, is a snowflake, though. 
oh it's so much fun though he's just like with Lowell on this oh it's like he got like a thesaurus and he looked up the word for shit eating and then he made sure he used every single iteration of it okay i'm gonna have to have a look but i do agree with Noel. it's blistering and uh and in short he calls away says a basic bitch (laughs) (laughs) and it's possibly fair uh, thank you to my friend Rachel for posting up on Facebook, alerting me to this Who's gorgeous piece of Have I got O? There's still <laughs> time for me to do Oasis. Just, just be ready for the backlash. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, I think I've got uh, Barcelona next. Let me see. Yes, Barcelona's up next. I don't have a huge amount to say about Barcelona. It's a beautiful track. It's, it's kind of about going... You know, you go away and you're like, why don't I Going live away, here? what's that? Well, remember back in those days <laughs> when you could go away. And and it's like, wouldn't my life be so much better here? You know, why don't I live here? Oh, Everything's yeah. better yeah, here. Yeah, definitely I'm have rubbish. had that feeling, yeah. Um, and, you know, just seeing the kind of romanticism, the, the old sort of beautiful old-timeliness of it and stuff. But he knows, he says in the song as well, like, I know it's not real. I get it, but yeah, it's I like every dream. time you go to Greece, you buy a bottle of raki. But yeah, this is great. I can just, you know, relive this at home, and then the raki sits there untouched for like twenty years. <laughs> it just reminds me you're, you're not there. Just not Greece. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I might, um, I might end up skipping bus. It is beautiful, but I want to talk about Rufus's dad. Um, yeah, do because I think it's very interesting. I think Loudon Wainwright III is conspicuous in his absence on Rufus's first album. There are no songs about him. It's all very, you know, dreamy, um, wishful, and, um, you know, lost. But why should there be songs about his dad on there? Well, because the Wainwrights love to talk to each other through the medium of song, especially when they're released to the general public. So... I've just put on Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road, which is probably, uh, well, no, it's definitely the most popular Loudon Wainwright the third song. Great song title. That there has ever been. Um, actually, I found out, I was looking at Loudon's very first album, album one, and if you look at the cover of that album and compare it to Rufus Wainwright's first album, they're eerily similar. Oh. But two people I've who never don't seen always see eye to eye, I thought it was pretty interesting. Also, it's called Album One, and Rufus called his his album Rufus Wainwright. It's not quite the same. When you see them sing, lots of people have ponderous albums. Not no, anyone else has albums called Album One. Well, it's just that kind of it doesn't matter. No, yeah, okay. this song, this, these songs, you know, collectively don't have a name. It's just okay, they're just us. It's me. Album. Yes. Yeah, okay. Or it's just me. Yeah. Um, fun fact about Loudon Wainwright. He attended a prep school in Delaware called St. Andrews. And do you know why St. Andrews in Delaware is very famous? No. It's the school of the Dead Poets Society. Oh my God, I didn't. I remember that from my <laughs> D for Dead Poets episode. Way back at, yeah, yeah okay. D pod volume one, if you wanted to go back to. Excellent. Uh, he's acted throughout his uh, life. He was Captain Calvin Spaulding in MASH. 
can cast your mind back that far. Oh, well, link there to Suicide is Painless, Magic Preachers cover. Oh, I know, the I really wanted theme. to play the Mash theme, but I, I, I remembered that I was not allowed to play it at one point. I wasn't allowed to play a TV tune. I think I wanted to hear Hill Street Blues and you wouldn't let me, so. <laughs> you can play it that you won't actually I know, deprive you of Mash. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind playing Ben Mash. Uh, he was the mayor, or he wasn't the mayor, he was called something else. He was in uh, Tim Burton's Big Fish in 2003. Oh, okay. He's been in several Judd Apatow movies. He's, really? He's, he's a big mate of, of Judd's, yeah. He oh. was a doctor in Knocked Up. Really? Yeah, he was the priest in Portugal Virgin. He's been a bunch of them. Oh, I've seen those both. How's that pass me by? He's a pretty de- generic looking guy. You wouldn't know him like a doctor really or a priest. He's just an average guy, really. Um, so, this this tune, Dead Skunk, is, is the biggest hit he ever had. Um, <laughs> the Wikipedia entry says that the song was written in 15 minutes after an actual incident where drivers were being accosted by the smell of a dead skunk in the middle of the road while they were driving. Well, that's that. So I was about to ask you what the song was about. <laughs> you know, I was like, Thanks for running that down for us. Yeah, I thought it was a metaphor, but good to know. Um, Rolling Stone has called him the poet laureate of family dysfunction. <laughs> I'm sure he really loves it. Um, the Independent asked him if he was worried that his biggest hit was uh, Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road, and uh, uh, to which he replied, it's kind of a cool thing to be remembered for. I'd rather have a hit single about a dead skunk than I Miss You, Let's Go to the Mountains, or Colorado, You're the Best, Dead Animals are Forever. <laughs> Actually, skunks um, has just got me thinking, have you seen a series recently called College Friends, Friends from College, something like that? No. Check it out. It's just—it's got a fantastic soundtrack. I think there were only one, possibly two series, and then it was cut off. But the soundtrack—I mean, the—you know—the well, yes, I guess soundtrack to a TV show is just amazing. The music they put to it—it's all stuff you'd love. Were you watching on Netflix? I think it was Netflix. Yeah, great cast as well. It's got what's his face from the Wonder Years. What's his name? Fred Savage. Fred Savage. (laughs) Yeah, he's in it. Yeah, loads of. It's good. Anyway, carry on as you were. Thank you. Well, maybe Loudon's in it. You never know. Well, the skunk was in it. Take it before it died. I think it was a live skunk. Yeah, it was well dead in that song, <laughs> and that was 1972. So I, I think we're done. An um, ancestor. <laughs> I love skunks. Have you ever seen one? They're so cute. No, I haven't. But I've seen you. You've sent me lots of really cute photos of baby skunks. <laughs> you went through a real baby skunk phase. Yes. I don't know why. But well, they were so cute. We don't have them in this country. And when I saw one in America, and everyone was going, "Oh no, run away from the skunk!" I was like, "Why do I smell drugs?" And look at that cute little thing. And they were like, no, that is, that's, that's the skunk. I was like, oh and my God, like, how? <laughs> yeah. I really thought that it was called skunk, like the drugs, um, the weed. I really thought it was called that because it was a strong smell. It never occurred to me that it smelled the like smell. actual skunk. Yeah, no, I have no idea. So probably now I've just outed myself as a bit of a thickie. <laughs> well, I'm with you. Never mind. Anyway, um, other well-known songs by Loudon. Hitting You, about smacking Martha across the legs on a car journey. Here's some lyrics for you. I pulled the auto over, hit you with all my might. I knew right away it was too hard and I'd never make it right. Whoa. It's quite dark. Yeah, it's really quite like, you know, um, You've just been telling me about your dad having a massacre at your brother for calling you a prat. What would he have done to, <laughs> to Rufus? <laughs> Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, another one is um, your mother and I, um, which is basically talking to the children about how they're splitting up. 
which is That's heart-wrenching. Um, I'm going to play a bit of that, actually. This one's a live one, actually. This might be from Career Moves. So Career Moves came out in 93, so I'm allowed to talk about Loudon. And it's, it's, it's a live album. Okay, right, 93. So why would you not be able to talk about them? Okay. Oh, it's an old song. It is absolutely beautiful. There's some great, uh, great lines as well where he tells the children not to blame themselves. And, you know, it's no one's fault. And your folks fell in love. Love's a very deep hole. So, um, yeah, Career Moves. It's a whole album. It's his entire set at, um, oh, I've forgotten now temporarily what the club is, but it's, uh, anyway, it's somewhere in New York and Borderline, I um, I might have to issue a retraction about that, <laughs> but anyway. I'm going to be Leviticus with it, because then there'd be another link to last no, week. I'm afraid okay. not. Um, but it, it's really great, actually. My, um, my brother bought it and gave it to me, and... This is beautiful. I absolutely love it. And it's funny as well. He's so funny. So, um, it was, uh, as you recall, I was just saying that Rolling Stone has called him the poet laureate of family dysfunction. Because he will write songs like this about his family, his ex-wife, his kids, some shit things he's done, like hitting them and then talking about it. I mean, I can't really imagine what it would be like to be one of his children. (laughs) It. Yeah, he's certainly he's making fault. money out, out of this stuff as well. So I, I think it's probably quite hard to That's right, you're writing about stuff he knows. Yeah, but when it's a child, you're still a child. And people are, you know, imagine being at school and everyone's like knowing your business because your dad put it out on an album. Anyway. Imagine being Madonna. Madonna's just thanks. Imagine being any rock star's kid. What a weird life. I think generally it probably is. folk singers, kids. <laughs> um, so Rolling Stone magazine was what prompted Rufus to write um, a gorgeous song called Dinner at Eight, which I didn't put on because it's obviously it's a, it's a later um, song. I think it's from one, one, which was 2003, I think. Um, and it's basically about a, a huge row that they had, um, which were also often violent, apparently, uh, at times violent. Um, was Rufus and his mum? And his dad. No. Um, and Rufus said that on that occasion, um, well, he said, this is Rufus, he said, we had just done a shoot for Rolling Stone together, and I told him he must be really happy that I got him back into that magazine after all these years. That sort of kicked things off. Later in the evening, he threatened to kill me. So I went home and wrote Dinner at Eight as a vindictive retort to his threat. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it is gorgeous. It starts off as bitter and, and angry and pointing out, like, why do I always have to leave when there's a disagreement? You know, why? how can it always be my fault? God, if only my teenage drops could have been so artistic. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know... Like the end of the first verse is like, well, I, I remember you leaving me, you know, on a snowy night. Mm. So how are you going to kind of explain that? And then this sort of the second part is more sort of it's like a cathartic sort of um, don't be, you know, he says, Daddy, don't be surprised if I want to see the tears in your eyes. Uh, but it ends with 
saying I, when 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 you left and I, I saw you leave, I knew that you loved me. Mm. So it ends on a positive note. But uh, Loudon has been quite open about his jealousy of his children. <laughs> he said, I go and see their shows and I'm proud. And then, you know, I think, gee, why aren't people paying more attention to me? <laughs> They're not so great. <laughs> Brilliant. He's sort of He's a being funny though, right? He is, but you definitely feel like there's a <laughs> there's a definite narcissistic streak in there. Um, I have a very fun fact, and I was so I was like, oh my god, I know who Loudon Wainwright is. I knew who he was when I was a kid, and I had absolutely no idea. Yeah, he's that bloke from the movies, the Doctor, and no, the, <laughs> the in the eighties, he was the resident guitar guy on Carrot Confidential between 1987 <laughs> and 1989. Hang on, what? You're talking about Jasper Carrot? Jasper Carrot. No. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember when he had to have it? I, do you yes. know, I would have put money on, I, I thought it was Richard Digence. Do you remember Richard Digence? No. He was like an Essex boy and he had a guitar and he'd write like Oh, songs God, like yeah, Abbott. with the curly hair. He did like, Dark yeah, but yeah, yeah, like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. He's like totally average guy. And yeah, I've never found him funny, funny, but I think oh, I know I, I liked him. Yeah. I liked Victoria Wood, did you? I did like Victoria Wood, yes. That kind of in that kind of vein, yeah, I, know, I would have yeah. sworn it was Richard Digence, but it wasn't. It was Loudon Wainwright. Wow! So he lived in London God, for about ten Carrot. years. I've forgotten all about him. I know what did happen to him. My favourite story about Jasper Carrot is that his daughter Lucy Davis played um, Dawn in the Office. You know, really? the Ricky Gervais she, one. Was she the blonde one? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow! I so, didn't know she was his. Right. Yeah, and she did an interview and. Well, she was, they said, why, why did you, um, why did you change your name? And she was like, why would you think I'm the one with the stage name? Why would you think I changed my name? <laughs> but why would you change your name to Carrot? Well, he's a comedian. It's kind of funny. Jasper Carrot. He was a folk singer back in the day. Apparently he had was a he top really? five single. No. With a, like a novelty song that was produced by Jeff Lynn of ELO, which is really random. But he's from, obviously he's from Birmingham, so. So, the, what? Jeff, Jeff Lynn is from Birmingham. <laughs> I was going to say, that you're a comedy singles. <laughs> no, but Fred Common in Birmingham. Some, <laughs> something about a moped. Was Victoria Wood from Birmingham as well? Sorry? Was Victoria Wood from Birmingham as well? Midlands, definitely Midlands. I don't know about Birmingham. Um, so, Loudon lived in London. Tongue twister for you. Um, after <laughs> he divorced Kate McGarrigal, Rufus and Martha's mother, um, on a trip to see his dad when he was 14, Rufus would just wander around London because his dad was busy, he was recording or doing whatever he was doing. So he'd just take himself off to around Soho or everywhere around London, West London. I think his dad lived in Hampstead. Anyway, he so he picked, he kind of picked up a guy and met a guy and it was all going quite romantically and he asked the guy if he would take him to the park to show him where they put the concerts on, right. which would be Hyde Park. Um. But in the end, this guy uh, basically um, raped him Ooh. in Hyde Park. Wow. Um, then he robbed him. And then he tried to strangle him. Like, he was strangling him. Jesus Christ. Um, and Rufus got away by pretending he was epileptic. He faked an epileptic fit. Wow. And the guy ran off. So he was nearly and killed in Hyde Park at 14 Got away old. with it. Yeah. Apparently, he was celibate for years after because of the trauma of the situation. God, when was this then? So, yeah, yeah, in the mid, yeah, mid, mid to eighty-seven. Wow. Um, and then, of course, that was the time where sort of 
we're getting a lot more information about AIDS. And so he was completely terrified at age 14 that he had AIDS. Because I think everyone at that time, like, I mean, he was, uh, he knew he was a gay man. But like, I feel like everybody almost felt like they could get AIDS, you know, like it was so scary at the time. And, you know, it was so such a panic Mm. about, you know, getting AIDS, you know, it was like, didn't matter, you know, what you knew about it. it was still like this incredibly frightening scary thing yeah yeah it must be petrifying so for him yeah i'm sure he was i mean he'd been i mean you know sexually assaulted absolutely terrifying anyway um that is a very 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 horrible horrible story so we're going to move on because there's certainly nothing i could say to yeah okay what's next smooth things over i'm going to move on to his mum uh, Kate McGarrigal. And this song is from the first album. Um, and this song was written for her. It's called Beauty Mark. talks about all the ways they're different but then he says all the things they're similar Kate had a beauty mark <laughs> she had one a beauty mark which is what this track is called <laughs> oh I love that piano there it's very good So, Kate McGarrigal, she was born in Montreal. Um, I think I mentioned that she was a part of the the folk duo, the McGarrigal sisters, uh, with her older sister, Anna. At the time she met Loudon, I think she was possibly more successful at that time than he was. He possibly may have found threatening, I'm not sure. Well, and he had fairs and he stepped out. Yeah. Back when they split, um, Kate's sister Anna wrote the song Kitty Come Home because they were living in New York, obviously, when they split up. Um, and it's absolutely beautiful um, and really sad. Um, and she was a huge opera fan as well. This line here. I think Callis sang a lovely long Norman. You prefer Robeson in Deep River. If this lyric made me want to know. I figured Callis was an opera singer, but I, I Maria. Really wanted, Maria. Yeah. I really wanted to know more about her. Um, so I went out. You remember in the 90s where if you wanted to know something, you couldn't Google it. Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> well, you can, but you can't hear somebody. So I don't know. I, it was a bit random, but I, I went and I bought the compilation album La Divina. Which I think came out in '93 as well. Weirdly, it was '91 and '93. Um, right after I bought his album, because I listened to his album to death, and I completely loved her. Um, I figured everybody thought she was great, though. Hang so on, who are you talking about now? Kate McGarrigal or Maria? Right, okay. I'm talking about Maria Callas. Right. Um, there's. He's talking about in the song. He's talking about that Maria Callas played. A lovely Norma. Um, and on the La Divina album, 
she's singing the Casta Diva um, part. And I, I just loved it, but I was playing it at my parents' house in the kitchen. Remember when you had the, ki- the, the, the kitchen phone attached to the wall? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in those good days. We had one in the toilet as well. And <laughs> I am almost obsessed with this. You have a good... I just yeah. want to know, were you supposed to use it when you were on the toilet? Or was it when you were... I don't know. My dad likes his gadgets all over the place. I mean, it was useful if you were in the shower. That, that's and... exactly what I was thinking, that that that, that you wouldn't want to miss a call. So yeah. you wouldn't know I the think that's ringing. why he installed it, yeah. Right. Because otherwise, <laughs> you just have to wonder, like, you're talking to your friends and they're like, what's that noise? No. Yeah, you make the mistake of asking you and sat in the toilet, you're midstream, and then you're like, oh, hang on. <laughs> oh, my God, did that actually have to do that? Yeah, so you did answer the phone on the toilet. Yeah, and then you kind of realise what you're doing. It's like, oh, oh hang on, hold it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Finish the conversation really quickly. Or you're like, mom, it's for you. <laughs> and wait for them to pick it up downstairs. The I'm having and a dog. <laughs> oh my god. Don't get a toilet phone. Terrible idea. <laughs> toilet phone. <laughs> it was a loo phone. Actually, I think my dad might have insisted on calling it a lavatory phone. I don't know. Like, we don't say toilet. It's a lavatory. <laughs> Mum, I'm on the loo phone. Leave me <laughs> I suppose you could have private conversations though if you didn't want your parents to because ours was before we got the kitchen phone. No, because anyone be could pick hallway. up the other phones. The phones were all connected. You, you could hear it though, couldn't you? I mean, come on. I don't think my family ever did that. Okay, now it sounds like I'm just in denial and I did it all the time and I didn't notice. <laughs> but I really don't think they cared that much. Plus, I was in the hallway. If they really wanted to know what I was saying, all they had to do was stand in the hall and listen. Yeah, we, we, we didn't have a big house. You could hear everything anyway. Right, yeah. I mean, we definitely didn't have any privacy. So, yeah, so, yeah, so long story short, <laughs> thank you for telling everyone about your toilet bowl. so amazing. Um, if you wanted to know what somebody sounded like, and, and you didn't think they were going to play it on the radio, which they absolutely were not going to play Maria Callas on the radio. <laughs> That's what you had to do. Those were the that, that was the life we led. You had to take. Oh, you heard a single, like hearing Rufus Wainwright's single. You'd have to go out and, and buy the album, and yeah. if you didn't like the rest of it, fuck you. Or you heard two singles that week that you really liked, and you only mm. had a tenor. <gasps> Hard times. Which album were you going to buy? Yeah, many the a time had the that conundrum all the time. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes the price difference could be huge. I remember getting, I had to buy an import of of an Indigo Girls album and that was like nearly 20 pounds. Yes, I remember spending, yeah, 19 pounds on holes pretty on the inside. Tower Records. (sighs) Harsh times. How did we survive? I mean, really, it's ridiculous. Um, Anyway, so yeah, I was in the kitchen and uh, the, the the, the phone in the kitchen was right next to the stereo and I, I guess I was making dinner and I was playing it was Casta Diva. And I answered the phone, hello. I just wasn't really thinking. You know, like how sometimes classical music, you stop hearing it, it kind of just washes over you. Like they're not lyrics you can sing to. Well, I don't, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. So you almost don't even, it kind of becomes background sometimes. Anyway, I didn't realize it. doesn't happen to me. I'm, I'm a terrible listener. I don't like classical music generally. <laughs> so it irritates me. I find it like, um, like I, I like jazz, but there's certain types of jazz that's just like too squiggly for me. Like, look, like my husband really likes John Coltrane, and I just find him too like the stuff that's really improvisational. Just, it just irritates me. And I know what you mean. Classical music does that to me. <laughs> so there you go. I just add to myself as a total philistine. No, I mean, you like what you like. I just find that classical music, like I'll be in the car and I'll be changing the radio stations and going, oh, hate that. No, no. 
And then I won't have noticed that I've stopped changing the stations because I've accidentally found like a classical and it's just completely just washed over me. It's just not irritated me to the point where I didn't even realize I stopped looking. And then I'll be like, oh crap, I missed BBC Three. <laughs> yeah, I can't relate. I mean, I know what you mean, but not in relation to classical, but okay. Anyways, it was my dad on the phone. I'm going to get this story out one way or another. <laughs> I've started, so I'll fucking finish. Um, so I answered the phone and I was like, hello. And my dad was like, oh my God, is someone being murdered in our house? And I was like, oh no, it's Maria. <laughs> it's Maria. <laughs> What's that, your flatmate? <laughs> That's when I learned, not everyone loves Maria. <laughs> In fact, she um, during her during her career, I think people said that she had a rather heavy, ugly voice, but that she inflected so much into it that she made it beautiful. Yeah, generally, I can't do opera either. Sorry. She said she was also well. She was also kind of uh, like a heavier person, but she didn't really bother her until I think her manager was like, "You need to, you know, cut down." And she was like, "What?" But she felt like it was affecting her voice a bit, so she lost a, a lot of weight, and suddenly. People were fascinated with her and she was this gorgeous um, icon. Um, Really, she was Jackie O before Jackie O was Jackie O. And in fact, she was going out with Aristotle Onassis. Oh, wow. Jackie nicked him. (laughs) But then he would would go to Paris, secretly see Maria. So I guess she got the last laugh there. Anyway, um, that really, yeah, that really fucked her up. I think she died kind of young too. Anyway. Um, let me see now. Oh yeah. So Rufus, we were talking about him and his mum though. So he he was very close to his mum and, uh, he wrote his first song, Liberty Cabbage. And she loved it, which was, he was like, oh my God, I'm going to be this amazing, huge star. So he went away and he wrote tons more and he played them for her and she hated everything. (laughs) Um, so he realized he had to work a bit harder. I'm going to play a bit of Kitty Come Home because it's so pretty. So this is what Anna wrote for Kate. Yes. Right. But they performed it together. Nice. It's very pretty. But I recently found out what Liberty Cabbage is. Do tell. I'm curious. I've heard this before. Being a Rufus Wainwright fan, I knew it was his first song, but I just thought it was like a childish, silly thing. But um, I was recently listening to the podcast, um, You're Wrong About. Have you heard it? Um, I have. Recently... But I can't remember in relation to who. It's great. Yes, I th- oh, Courtney Love one. They've got a good Courtney Love episode. Yeah. Oh, have they? I haven't dealt too. I'm I'm listening to their more recent ones, and I like to go backwards that way. You like to do it the other way, don't you? You like to start at the beginning and go forward. Yeah. I weirdly do it the other way. They don't do that for our podcast. <laughs> yeah, always start at the latest one. Yeah. That would be definitely my advice. Um. Anyway, they were talking about. Um, how sauerkraut was renamed in the First World War in America to Liberty Cabbage. Wow. To, yes, to expunge all German influence in the country. Amazing. Wow, I wonder what else was renamed during the world for those reasons. Have you got a list? I've got a few. Oh, I love this stuff. Um, so they uh, they actually mentioned Liberty Cabbage, not anything to do with Rufus. It just, just so happened that I was listening to that this week. And I was like, oh, Liberty Cabbage, I get it. Um, they were talking about when um, they changed the name uh, of French fries to Freedom Fries. Okay, I knew that one. In the Congress cafeterias in response to um, France not wanting to support the Iraq invasion. It's <laughs> pretty funny. It didn't really stick, did it, Freedom Fries? And apparently French is mustard. 
had to then issue this statement saying it's a family name it's got nothing to do with the country please don't cancel us yellow sort of mustard early form of cancellation <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're not changing our name because that's our actual <laughs> name. name. Um, so that episode was the Chicks versus the Iraq War, which is a goodie, <laughs> I have to say. It was very, very enjoyable. Anyway, the lovely Kate McGarrigal um, tragically died from a rare form of cancer when she was only 63 back in 2010. So she never met Rufus's daughter, Viva. Did she know he had a daughter? No, I didn't. Viva. Oh, right, okay. Um, he uh, co-parents FIFA <laughs> yeah you know somebody's got a kid called FIFA poor buggers don't you some dad who really loves the you know PlayStation game whatever anyway Viva's mother is Rufus's old school friend Lorca Cohen any relation to Leonard? yes she is Leonard Cohen's daughter so apparently Viva is ready for the stage already. She's only like 11. Wow. But she writes, she performs, she's raring to go, and, and he said they're really trying to hold her back from going for it big time. Um, apparently uh, his mother was very supportive of the whole thing. So he felt like that was what he needed to give him the extra push. He said, I think this is something that you need to do. Um, Leonard Cohen apparently is fairly quiet about the whole thing, but uh, he loved his granddaughter very much and they spent a lot of time together. I think Lorca lived with him before he died. Um, according to Rufus, the next song I'm going to play, which is one of his, which is Sally Ann from his album. Sally Ann, short for Salvation Army Canada. Um, he said that Leonard loved this song of his. Well, he started out, it was at a show, and he said, um, actually, Leonard Cohen, you know, enjoyed this particular one. And then he was like, well, actually, actually, his daughter told me that he listened to it for two days straight. Well, actually, he said, basically, Leonard Cohen is obsessed with me. <laughs> I wonder what Loudon thinks of his granddaughter's parentage. Other being <laughs> yeah i mean that must piss him off as well yeah because he was of course known as the new bob dylan until he wasn't <laughs> although he's written a story i can't remember what song it is but he's basically saying you know we should all gather together all of us the next dylans <laughs> plenty of people have been saddled with that mantle. imagine family christmas <laughs> yeah. around the piano <laughs> well, they do. arguing over the carols you know you know they play gigs <laughs> in fact they used to do a Christmas I think it was the Christmas gig and they used to do it at Carnegie Hall and the third year they did it the manager was kind of looking at alternate venues this was when Kate McGarrigal was still alive and, and they went off and they were looking into it and they came back and said listen I think it's gonna it's, it's gonna be Carnegie Hall again um, you know, it's just going to work better for what you're doing, and you know, everyone knows the setup and stuff. And apparently, Kate said, Carnegie Hall again. <laughs> Rufus thought it was really, really funny. <laughs> it's pretty funny. His mum being a prima donna about it. Royal Albert Hall again. <laughs> that was the last gig she ever played, actually. When we the Royal Albert again. <laughs> Six months before she died. Oh, wow. Um, so, the gorgeous backing vocals are provided by Martha, again on this. 
she, I mean, their voices just sound amazing together. Yeah. Unfortunately, it means that Martha has to play second fiddle to Enrola or not. She's toured with him. She's provided backing vocals time and again. In fact, they did some kind of show which was like um, amazing Canadian singers and everyone was doing like a cover version of somebody else's song. And Rufus called her and she said, look, Rufus, I'm not going to do this with you. I'm not going to sing your backup. He was like, oh, you know, like, fine, kind of thing. Um, but it was because they'd already asked her and she covered one of his songs. Oh, really nice. oh that's cute. Yeah. Did they ask Loudon? <laughs> well, he's not Canadian. To be fair. Okay, all right. They've got dual citizenship, so they are American okay. and also Canadian. Um, so Martha's debut album came out in two thousand and five. Do you have this album? No. Uh, she was made very, very famous by one particular track on this album. Do you know which one it was? No. Tell me, and then I'll kick myself. It's a genius idea, actually, because it definitely got everyone's attention when you're the daughter of someone who's famous and you write a song called Bloody Motherfucking Arsehole. <laughs> People start to listen. <laughs> like, we're going to bump Sally Ann for Bloody Motherfucking Arsehole. So when I hear her, I hear a lot more, the McGarrigal sisters, she's a lot more folky uh-huh. than her brother. Poetry is no place she's... for a heart that's a Having said that, she's also pretty loud and too. Um, <laughs> She had a great retort for this after the Guardian were like, so uh, you admit that's about your dad, like, eek, <laughs> is he still talking to you? What's what did she say? She said, for most of my childhood, Loudon talked to, to me in song, which is a bit of a shitty thing to do, <laughs> especially as he always makes himself come across as funny and charming while the rest of us seem like whining victims and we can't tell our side of the story. As a result, he has a daughter who smokes and drinks too much and writes songs with titles like Bloody Motherfucking Asshole. Shit. <laughs> wow. Tell it like it is. It's now known as her rage song. <laughs> so you see, you got rage after all. Pull <laughs> back. Pull back. <laughs> um, I think they've made it up. Um, Vanity Fair wrote a story about the whole family and, and it was called Songs in the Key of Lacerating, which I think was fair. <laughs> That's great. In fact, in the story they said, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, his kids slagging him off, Loudon can take it because Lord knows he's dished it out. Yeah. <laughs> fair play. It is actually gorgeous. Um, this song is great, I love it. Um, they, they now, when they perform together, Loudon and Martha, they sing his song, You Never Phone, You Never Write. And it's kind of bitching at each other. But yeah, it's very funny. I think she feels a bit more like she's come into herself a bit. But yeah, she's massively in a lot of people's shadow. It must be pretty tough. In fact, I've got a bit of You Never Phone. You want to hear a bit? Yeah, please. Loudon and Martha. You have to listen to Career Moves, though. It's a great album. When you're making your cakes. <laughs> never phone, you never write. Hey, I've stopped hoping that you may. <laughs> you're trying to hurt my feelings, right? <laughs> you never phone and you never write. 
never write, you never phone. I'm sorry, I got a bitchin' mom. I'm sorry, I gotta pick this bone. <laughs> you never write, you never phone. Sometimes I wonder what you must think of me. That's lovely. I don't think he does think that, but anyway. <laughs> so I have a link for you from last week's pod. Ooh, another tribal quest. This year my birthday came and went. So, Q-Tip. Remember him? <laughs> I do, <week>? indeed. <laughs> he collaborated with Mark Ronson in 2011 with the song Bang Bang Bang. The same year, Rufus had been working with Ronson and had invited him as his plus one to the Oscars Vanity uh, Fair party. Uh-huh. Ronson had previously been engaged to Rashida Jones. I don't know if you know who she is. And she rings bells, but I don't know. She's an actress. She's in Parks and Rec. She was also in the American version of The Office. Oh, okay, right. Karen, I think her name was in. Uh, she's also the daughter of music legend Quincy Jones. Right. Um, but anyway, in 2011, Mark Ronson was actually married to someone else. When Rashida found out that Rufus planned to take Mark as his plus one. She uninvited him. Ooh. She managed to get him kicked off the guest list. Who, Rufus? Or... Yeah. Wow. Because he was bringing Mark and she didn't want him to come. So, uh, yeah, but I guess she didn't know too many Rufus songs because uh, she she should have known he wasn't going to take that line down. <laughs> um, so not only did he go around her and appeal to Natalie Portman, who got him back on the list, <laughs> but he also wrote a song about it. Whoa. And it's on his uh, Out of the Game album called Rashida. Oh my God, he actually named it after Oh that. yeah. Wow. He doesn't talk about it now, and I, but I, I heard nearer the time what had actually happened, and I can't find it anywhere now. It was so frustrating, so I don't know if it's sort of been KO'd, but... Oh no. But I have heard him... Oh, I want to hear it. Uh, ...say that um, he was mainly really annoyed because he had bought a beautiful Tom Ford jacket for the occasion he was excited to wear it, <laughs> and then he heard he was de-invited. <laughs> so he was like, no, fuck no. Yeah, sure. Um, fun fact about Rashida Jones, her sister Kidada was engaged to Tupac before he was murdered. Mm. And that, my friend, is the end of the art Very good. Very two. good. Well done. That was great. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. So I know that we have some interesting news that we've got uh, coming up. Is it the day before our pod comes out? Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Thursday. So we are on the Better Band podcast hosted by uh brandon palomo it's a pearl jam podcast and hannah and i are wittering away on it talking about uh save you yeah i'm a bit worried i think we're a bit potty mouthed (laughs) i don't remember what we said no we were trying to teach brandon some good british swears i think okay british could be a little embarrassing i guess we'll find out we are going to find out pretty soon (laughs) (laughs) mum turn it off don't listen (laughs) <laughs> right, and uh, you can find us on Facebook, Society Osmia Genetics Podcast, uh, on Twitter. We're trying to get a bit better at the tweets. I retweeted, don't forget that. Yes, that. I'm going to have to check out your retweet <laughs> and de-retweet. De- <laughs> no, it's so good. Okay. And you will appreciate it. Have a look. Uh, on Instagram, Society Osmia Genetics Podcast, and you can message us on Anchor FM. Yep, leave us a message. Yeah. Oh, leave us a review, except if you wanted to leave a one-star review. We don't want that. But, you know, a good 
at five is is the best. Um, yeah, that would be lovely. Four, I guess. Yeah. No, no, just five. No, okay, only five. Yeah. Just just five. If okay. you if you can't do five, don't do it. <laughs> please, <laughs> but yeah, please do, you. please do. It would <laughs> help us get uh, out there a little bit more. Um, until next week. Until next week. Yeah. Thank you very much. Good night. Bye. Bye bye.